Uh, it is good to be back this morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, I hope you are well by God's grace. Um, let's pray together as we go to God's word and ask him to do a work in our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering as the church, the people bought by the blood of Jesus. We bring nothing to the table this morning. We are broken, needy, hurting people. And you've met us by your grace and you've called us to yourself. And we have been saved by a glorious savior. And yet, Father, our lives are just one story after another story of struggle and failure and hurt. And so we, we gather on Sundays with the church um, because we want to worship you, but really because we need you. And your word meets us where we are and you minister to us by your grace. And so Father, this morning, would you open our blinded eyes? As David said in Psalm 119, would you enable us to see glorious things from your word this morning? Would you guard us from distraction as we listen? Would you guard me from distraction as I proclaim your word? And would you do a great work this morning uh, through the power of your word, through the spirit that, that works as the word is proclaimed? And we look forward to what you're gonna accomplish this morning as we in obedience to you submit to your word. And in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you have a copy of God's word, and I hope you do, let's go to Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three. As you turn there, I'd like to ask you the question, what defines you? What defines you? Or maybe better stated, where do you find your identity? Identity is a really significant question. What, because what you identify as dictates your life. So if, you're, if you identify primarily by your job, what you do for a living, which a lot of Americans do, you'll be a workaholic, right? Because your job defines you. And so your performance in that job is highly significant because you have to perform at the level so that you feel like your identity is reached or accomplished, all right? Or maybe for some of you, it's you're defined as, as, a, as a wife or a mother. And so then you, you carry these like weight of guilt and shame when you don't quite perform right because your identity is wrapped up in, in who you are as a wife or as a mother. And, and, think, and the mother's side is interesting because then you, if it's wrapped up in your children, then when they leave one day, you're a wreck because your identity's gone, right? Because what identified you, you can't hold on to it. And it's like water through a strainer, they're going away. And now you're miserable because you no longer have an identity, the issue before us in Galatians is, is really the issue of identity. Now, you, if you're familiar with the book of Galatians and you've been in church very long or read your Bible very often or you've studied church history much, you would know that Galatians is, is really about justification by faith, being declared righteous by God. And that is true. But I think there's a, a deeper issue going on in Galatians and the issue is your identity in Christ. And so Paul is arguing about justification by faith alone in Jesus alone for one bigger reason, who are you identified as? What is your identity? And you know, we as Christians, and I'm gonna assume that this morning, even though I know there may be unbelievers here, we as Christians, we're not, we're not free of the charge of finding our identity in other things. 
Even though we know foundationally, I should find my identity in Jesus, we have a hard time keeping that before us, don't we? And so we chase so many other things for our identity. And so this morning, I want us to come back to this reality of identity in Christ, being a child of God, counted as an heir of God in Christ, of the seed of Abraham. All of these speak to your identity. Because I believe that when our identity is secure in Christ, your life will be changed for the glory of Christ. So we need to, hold, we need to be reminded of identity, and then as you're reminded of identity, your life will be lived differently. Because whoever and however your identity is secured will dictate your life. So let's look at Galatians chapter three. And like always, dropping into the middle of a book is hard because we don't remember the context of what's going on. So bear with me. I'm gonna read verses 22 to 29. And then our text for the morning will be 25 through 29. Let's read together. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I think we'll see this morning that the big idea, if you will, is the glorious reality of our union with Christ the glorious reality of our union with Christ. It has two implications for us this morning. One's a vertical implication. Your union with, your union with Christ changes your relationship with God. And then it has horizontal implications. Your union with Christ will radically change your relationship with fellow humanity. So it's gonna go both ways this morning. Now, I don't have time to deal with 22 to 24. Uh, that can be for, for Pastor Doug's sermon next week. Um, <laughs> But let me just give you a a quick 50,000 foot flyover of 22 to 24 to bring us up to speed. There's some confusing things going on here that I wanna try to make clear. We see in verse 22 through 24, the scripture imprisoning everything under sin. We see the law being called a guardian or a taskmaster. And so what Paul is doing is he's showing the Galatian church that the way in which people were trying to live to be accepted by God doesn't work. All right, that's what he's going after. If I could sum it up real succinctly, he's saying you're thinking that your performance equals acceptance, but it doesn't. Now, to be very clear, Paul is not saying that Abraham or Moses was justified by works. If you look back in chapter three, verse, I think uh, six, let's see. um, Yeah, verse six, he says, Abraham believed God in what? It was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul is not saying that God changed Some Christians think that, well, in the Old Testament, you were saved by works. In the New Testament, you're saved by grace. That is not true. Salvation has never been by works because our works are always 
filthy rags when it comes to justification, right? We cannot earn favor with God. Abraham couldn't, Moses couldn't, and you can't. It's always been by grace. What Paul's addressing though, is this church in Galatia was given the gospel and then false teachers came in and said, in order to to actually earn a more spiritual uh, closeness with God, do works. And they were using the law to do it. And so Paul uses the idea of law and he says, no, You don't get closer to God by some external performance. Your closeness to God is exclusively based on Jesus. So when he's going back and forth with law and it's imprisoning and it's a guardian, and I want to talk about this more later, don't conclude that that he's saying the law, remaining the Old Testament law is bad or that it was by works, it wasn't. He's simply going to say, and I agree with this, something better has come. That's his point. He's saying the law had a purpose. The law was a blinking sign, like one of those arrows in a store that's pointing you somewhere, saying open, 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 or sale, sale, sale. The law was a blinking neon sign saying there's a Messiah coming. His name is Jesus. And he's pointing you down this corridor to say, you're gonna see Jesus, he's coming. And so that's kind of the ramp up, if you will, of where we find ourselves this morning in verses 25 through 29. We have a vital union with Christ, a vital union with Christ, and it changes everything. So number one of our two points, union with Christ changes your vertical relationship, meaning your relationship with God is gonna radically change because of your union with Christ. If you look at your Bible there in verse 25, it it should say something like this, but now that faith has come, but now that faith has come. I believe that those few words are kind of the hinge point of the entire passage. If you will, they are the Christmas tree that everything else hangs on, okay? So everything else we talk about this morning hinges on that statement, but now faith has come. And he's gonna get into a lot of details, but all of it goes back to that, that something changed, But now faith has come. Well, if you jump back to verse 22, you'll see exactly what he refers to. He said, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So three verses later, he says, but now faith has come. It's shorthand for faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He just told you in a longer sentence what it means. Now he just says that faith that I just talked about, faith has come. Faith has come, and he's going to tie everything back into that. Now, I want to just give you a quick biblical theology, if you will, of of Paul's mindset. I believe Paul is saying faith has come in a reference to everything that's come in all of Scripture has been building to this one object of faith. His name is Jesus. All right, if you you think with me about Luke 24, you don't have to turn there, but Luke 24, 25. Remember the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection? He greets some disciples. We're not sure if they're part of the 12 or not, but he greets some disciples. They didn't recognize him, which means he just had a glorified body. He wasn't easily recognizable. And so they didn't remember who he was and uh, they didn't recognize him to to be the Messiah. And then he says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus believed that everything in the scriptures that came before him was pointing to him. 
right? That's where, that's where he's going. All this that was beforehand, it wasn't just stories and laws and it was all going somewhere. It was all going to me. Then if you, John 5, 39, Jesus makes another statement to the religious leadership of his day. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about who? Me, me. So, and when he says scriptures, just to make sure you're clear, it's everything in your Old Testament. So we think scriptures and we think whole Bible. And that's good, we should think that. But when Jesus said scriptures, the New Testament wasn't written yet. So he's saying, you search the Old Testament. That's kind of the part we ignore, isn't it? Like that's the part we don't like to read all that much, sadly, but we should. But he says, in those you find me because faith has come and it was all building to me. So Paul in, his, in, this, in Galatians, I think he is arguing that it's always been all about him. It's always been going to Jesus. And this is why I think Paul was so mightily used by God because what was Paul before he was converted? He was a scholar in the Old Testament. Like he knew all of it and he missed Jesus. And then Acts 9 happens, he's converted. And all of a sudden, Paul sees Christ everywhere. He sees him all over scripture and he can be mightily used by God preaching from the Old Testament and showing us Jesus. So faith has come. And we read that and the gravity of the passage kind of just isn't there for us because we don't live, we didn't live in the time of pre-Christ, post-Christ, like these people did in Galatia. So we read this, we're like, oh, well, of course Jesus came. Everybody knows that. But here he's making a, a monumental shift. Faith, the one that we've been believing in for millennia, he now came and everything is gonna change. And so as, as Paul walks through this text, he's continue, or as, you, as he writes this under divine inspiration and we walk through it, we're gonna see everything is back to that faith has come. Faith has come. So let's look at verse 25. Union with Christ changes your relationship to the law. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. This is a weird word. I don't know how your Bible translates it. It might translate it as teacher, taskmaster, schoolmaster. Uh, but we have a hard time with this word uh, for a variety of reasons. But one is that we, we just don't want to think of as a teacher as a bad person. All right, but let me talk to you about Roman, Greco-Roman culture, okay? Greco-Roman culture in the first century, um, if you had money, you hired a person to be the pedagogue. You've heard the word pedagogue, pedagogy, the word for teacher. So you hired a pedagogue to raise your child. And this person was, their job was to bring your child from, from childhood, about five, six years old, to maturity. And remember, in this culture, maturity was 12 or 13. You were pretty much ready to take on the world. So most junior hires today aren't there. But in the first century, you were. But part of it was because you had a pedagogue. And this pedagogue was, was kind of given carte blanche privilege to do whatever it took to make you a man or a woman. Like, this wasn't your buddy. This was somebody that you, you feared and you, you did not want them to be around because when you stepped out of line, it was their job to get you back in line. And so here Paul says, the law was like your pedagogue. The law was given so that you would know how desperately wicked you are. It was given so that you would see, man, I, I don't match up. It was like that that pedagogue that saw everything you did. 
and you're just like, can I just like get a minute on my own? Can I just like have a moment of immaturity? Like I'm just a little kid. And that pedagogue's job was to not give you a moment of immaturity. And he says the law was a guardian. And he says, now that faith has come, you're no longer under the guardian. So the law, the, the law, according to Paul, is this taskmaster with one glorious objective to point you to the Messiah. But since he's come, how humanity relates to God foundationally shifted. Let me read you a few verses. Galatians 3.24, which we'll get to, or which we're, we're in. Um, or I'm sorry, right before that, there we go. So the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In order that is a purpose clause. In order that, it has a purpose. What was the purpose? That you'd be justified. The law had a purpose to point you to Jesus. How about Matthew 5, 17? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. I came to do what you couldn't do. I came to live the life that you couldn't live under the law. I fulfilled it in your place. How about Romans 10, four? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So you might read a verse like Galatians 3, 25. Now faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian, which is the law. And, and you might have a few thoughts that are not correct. <laughs> what does this not mean? It does not mean that we have the privilege to sin with impunity. This is not the point. The point isn't, hey, not under the law. Great, I can do whatever I want. No, new covenant Christ followers are called to be holy just as their heavenly father is also holy in 1 Peter 1, which is a quotation of Leviticus 17. And so he quotes the law and applies it to you. So we don't just have the ability to go sin it up because we're not under the law. That's not the point. This does not mean that we can stop reading the first two thirds of our Bibles because, well, it's kind of law, you know, it's old, it's done. All of scripture is breathed by God. All of scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you wanna know how to walk with God, you wanna know who God is, you need the law, right? You need to study the Old Testament. I actually came from a class on the Old Testament, and one of the professors made the statement that he doesn't like the term Old Testament. He calls it the First Testament, he says, because in our minds, when we think old, we think it needs to be like in an antique shop. Like it's kicked to the curb and you replace it. He says, the, the old wasn't replaced by the new. The new just helps you understand it. The new gives you a perspective and a new changes how you see it because Christ has come. And so when we see that we're not under the guardianship of the law, what you should think maybe better is when you read Leviticus, these rules show me the character of God. These rules show me that God has a standard for his covenant people. And maybe be a little thankful that you don't have to keep all 613 of them. Because Jesus did it for you. That's the point. So he says the law was a guardian, but Christ came. And so you're no longer under this guardian. So what does it mean? You're not bound to the Old Testament. Neither you or the Old Testament followers of, of the one true God were justified by the law and your relationship to God is not on the basis of keeping a law. But do you know that in the Old Testament, it wasn't on the basis of law keeping either? It was on the basis of mercy. They had received abundant mercy. If you read the 10 commandments in Exodus 20, how does it start? 
I redeemed you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am your God. I have lavished you with grace and mercy. Now follow me. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we're called to today? I've given you mercy. I've given you grace. Now follow me. Now live for me. So you see, Paul is dealing with a Christian community in the first century that was claiming to be saved by grace and kept by performance. Does that not sound familiar to us today? Oh, we, oh we're so thankful that we're saved by grace, but the, the legalistic sanctification creeps in. I perform better, God will love me more. And he says, you're not under the law. Your relationship with God is not dependent on your performance. It's dependent upon Jesus' performance in your place. So your union with Christ changes your relationship to the law, verse 25. Verse 26, your union with Christ makes you sons of God. This, in some commentaries, is argued as the fulcrum or, or the main point of all of Galatians, that it, the book is building to this verse and then coming off of this verse. And I think that could be a fair statement. There, in this verse, verse 26, it says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is not a special category for the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian. There's not a particular race that God loves more than others as the Jews thought. There is one people of God bought by the blood of Jesus. And do you know this has always been God's plan? Do you remember why Jonah wouldn't go to Nineveh? It wasn't because of what Veggie Tales says, in case you're wondering. Please don't get your theology there. It was because in Jonah chapter four, Jonah revealed a massively racist heart. He said, I knew you'd save them and I hate them because they're Ninevites. Back in, back in the book of Jonah, God was wanting to bring non-Jewish people into his covenant people. Why? Because he's always wanted one people. And Jonah's saying, uh-uh, I hate them. I hate all of them. I want millions of them to die in eternal damnation. And God says, time out. And God wins. Because he's always been bringing in people to his covenant people. He's never been about one mono-ethnic group called the Jews, but the Judaizers sure thought so. The First Testament people, the first, first, uh, gener- first century believers who were thinking that they were Jewish Christians and if they kept the law, they were more favorable with God, were called Judaizers. And they thought that they were the superior race, the superior group, and everybody had to become like them to be loved by God. And actually the heart of Galatians is saying, no, no time out. We're one people of God. And that's where this verse is so central. Do you hear the identity language in this verse? For in Christ, you are sons of God. In Christ is probably Paul's two favorite words in the entire New Testament. He uses it over 80 times in the Pauline writings. In Christ, in Christ. You know, we talk a lot today in our Christian culture about our love for God. We sing about our love for him and what he's done for us. But if you go back a few hundred years, the Puritans especially, they talked a lot about Christ being in them, being known by him. You know, it's not so important that you know him, it's more important that he knows you. And so here Paul is going this in Christ, that there is a vital union between the believer and the savior. 
an inseparable union. And he's gonna explore the implications of this union. I mean, just listen to it. Listen quickly as I run through these verses. In Christ is a position of security, Romans 8.1. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. You're secure, not because you prayed a prayer, not because you wept one day, not because you raised your hands when you worship Jesus, not because you got emotional one time. You're secure for one reason alone. You're in Christ. There's your security. You're in him. How about in Christ is a position of covenantal love? Romans 8, 39, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You, you may know those verses. Height, depth, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come. Anything, all creation can't separate you from the love of God. Why? Because you're in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's the covenant security. The Old Testament, you might read your Bible and see steadfast love. That's the idea there. He loves you with a security and a covenantal faithfulness that even you can't get away from. Isn't that good? You might try to run, but if you're in him, you can't. And he can, he can outrun you. He can chase you down and you're secure in him. In Christ is a position of holiness. First Corinthians 1, 2. Paul says to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. You're made holy, both positionally and progressively, because you're in Christ. There's no such thing as a believer who wasn't made holy at the moment of his conversion, and there's no such thing as a believer who won't strive for holiness because of his conversion. So you're in Christ, and you are made holy, or you're a position of closeness, Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once who were far off have been brought near. What the preciousness of this. You're in Christ. And so the God whom you should run from is the God you can run to because he ran to you first, right? So you're close to him, Ephesians 2.13, because you're in Christ. And then we get to this text before us this morning and we have a position of adoption. You're in Christ. And he says these words, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, he doesn't use the word adoption here, but I think we can safely assume that when he says you're sons of God through faith, that's adoption language. You're brought in to the family of God. And think with me, the cultural context of the book of Galatians, what's going on? People who are of one bloodline saying to people of another bloodline, in order to be accepted by God, you have to do this. You have to be like us. And so he's arguing and saying, no, you don't. If you're in Christ, you're sons of God. And if we had time to trace sons of God in the Old Testament, what would we see? That Israel was the sons of God over and over and over. And here, now he's saying to the church, what are you? You're sons of God. Not because you're an ethnic nation, but because you're in Christ and you are sons of God of God. Do you, do you realize the immensity of grace in him adopting you as his child? Ponder with me for a moment. Okay, the God of the universe who created all these things that we see and know and, and, all, and all, the, all the creatures of our creation, everything, he's created it all. And then we're the one entity that runs from him. Everything else submits to him, we run. Okay, he has full privilege to just wipe you out and wipe me out and start over, but he doesn't. 
He chooses to love you and he chooses to love me all the way to sending his son to die in your place. Now, we know that story. And then he gives you grace and he, he forgives you of your sin. But would not God be just amazingly, gloriously good to save you and leave you as a serf in his kingdom? Like, would that not have been magnanimous grace? Be like, you know what? You've run from me. You've rebelled against me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be kind to you. When I should wipe you out, I'm not going to. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna save you. And then I'm gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna be out there. And you're like a serf. You know what a serf is? It was like the guy that couldn't come in the castle. He was like way out there and his life stunk. But at least the, at least the guy in the castle didn't wipe him out. So they kind of had this like mutual you know, understanding you know, I need you and you need me and, and so, but they were never close. God would have been amazingly good to do such to us, but he didn't. I think we need, to, we need to think about adoption in that language. He should have really stopped at just forgiving you, but he didn't. He brought you in as a son, as a daughter of God, and he gave you family identity in the one place that we don't belong, the presence of God. And he says, now you can run to me as a child runs to their father. And he even uses the word Abba, which was the word for a little child to a father. That kind of intimacy, he says, you have it with God because I have adopted you as my own. Because you're in Christ. I would go so far to say that, that your love for God will never be what it should if you don't meditate on adoption that adoption language causes your affections for Jesus to just swell. When you realize, what have I been given? You read Ephesians chapter one, and you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I bet some of you in this room have adopted children. And I love that. But can you imagine with me just an example of somebody who adopts children and I'm sure this has happened because we live in a sinful world, but this isn't normal. Can you imagine with me uh, somebody having their bio kids and their adopted kids and they adopt these children and bring them in, but, but from the outset, they tell these children, you know what, you're, you're second-class citizens because these are our bio kids. Like, no, you're a terrible parent. <laughs> no, that's not how it works. Like when you adopt, you bring them in. My friends who have adopted, I love the, the pictures from the courtroom where they're like hanging, holding up signs and celebrating on that final day when the judge says, this child is yours and all that process is done. And it's just like this celebration because it's just like you bringing a kid home from the hospital. They are in your family with all the rights and privileges of being in your family. And that's what he says here. All the rights and privileges of being a child of God, they're now yours. He's not a stingy father who holds you at arm's length, but he is the most benevolent father. And he says, I have made you mine. I have adopted you. So your union with Christ, brothers and sisters, makes you sons of God. And again, just in Galatians, Paul's already used the term sons of God twice. And you know who it refers to? both of those times, Jesus. Like Galatians 2.20, a verse you probably know, like I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave his, his life for me. Like that's son of God language, referring to the, the son. And here he takes son of God language and he says, because you're in Christ, you 
are sons and daughters of God. So you are his. And then third, we see that union with Christ means, again, you are his in every respect. You have been baptized into Christ. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, put on Christ. Now, I'm not convinced that this is a reference to water baptism simply because Paul doesn't talk about it anywhere else. It could be. It could be a reference to when, you, when, when God does the work of regeneration in your soul, he calls you in Matthew 28, go make disciples. And then what do you do? You baptize them. Why? Because you're publicly identifying them with Jesus. Excuse me, what has happened internally now has an external manifestation called baptism. But I think the word baptism, it has a few meanings and one is just to be put in something. So I think here in Galatians 3, what he's saying is, as many of you have been put into Christ, put on Christ. You've been put into him because you are his and he's in you, right? The whole whole point is in Christ. He says, so you've been put into Christ. Now put him on. And just real quick as a side note, the word baptize was just the idea of being put on, putting something on or immersing yourself in something. There's a few times in church history that um, in Bible translation, things get a little funky. And the word baptism is one of those words. Uh, because if you know the story of the King James Bible, um, which is a great translation of the Bible, um, it was translated by the kind of Church of England slash Catholics. Um, and when the translators got to the word baptizomai, they didn't want to translate it to immerse. Why? Because Catholics don't do it. And the Church of England didn't do it. And they were under the order of the king to write a Bible for the king. So what did they do? They took the word baptizomai and they created a new word, baptize. Tracking? They just transliterated a word. So when we read the word baptize, it's kind of got this weird only Christian meaning. But if you just took it at what it was originally, it was just to immerse in something, to put in or put under. All right, and so when you see the word baptized, think of it that way, it to be immersed in, to be put in, to be placed in. So here he says that you are, you've been baptized, you've been immersed into Christ. And so put on Christ. And so being born again, regeneration results in being placed into Christ, which then results in a public demonstration of baptism, right? Where you're saying, I am so thankful to identify with the Christ who is mine and I am his. So we see from these three verses that union with Christ changes our relationship with God. We go from strangers to friends. We go from outcasts to adopted sons and daughters of God. We go from people that have no business in his presence to delighting in his presence. And that is really key because Paul is about to transition and he's gonna give us a practical statement that illustrates the theology he's been talking about. And you know what's really a problem with so many of our Christian thinking and writing and speaking today? We wanna go right to the practical without the theological. We wanna just give me a how-to book, right? Give me a quick fix and I'll be better. That's just not how the scripture works because what, how you think will always shape how you live. So you can't just go to the practical and say, okay, well, I'm gonna do this. No, so God's word is so good. He gives you what, what is called indicative statements, who you are statements, and then he calls you to action. And these verses are so clearly indicative statements, who you are, who you are. And as you get the change of this vertical relationship between you and God, guess what? the horizontal begins to make sense. 
And if you try to jump to the horizontal, just what we see here and now without the vertical, vertical pieces in place, it's not gonna work. And so we've seen that our union with Christ changes our, our vertical relationship, us towards God. But Paul's gonna get into a really key component here, and that is that union with Christ changes your horizontal relationships as well. Let's read these verses together. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are, in, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And remember, this all is still coming off of verse 25, but now faith has come. Don't forget that, all right? Be holding on to that, but faith has come. And now there's a radical shift in how you relate to one another. Why does Paul go from union with Christ and identity as children of God to something so controversial? I think he does it because the practical illustration he gives marvelously illustrates everything he's talked about. So he's gonna give us an object lesson in verses 28 and 29 that actually help us wrap our small, finite minds around what he's been talking about for chapters and what he's gonna continue talking about. So it's interesting that in verse 28, Paul brings up potentially the three most controversial cultural issues of his day. You know what's interesting? These issues are the same three controversial cultural issues in our day, aren't they? Race, disparity of wages, and women roles. And those are pretty controversial issues. I mean, I bet if we just opened this conversation right now, we could talk for weeks with just the different opinions in a room this size. He brings it up in the first century. Why? Because it was a big deal then. And he's gonna say, what I'm telling you theologically will have radical implications horizontally in your relationships. So let's dive in it together. And let's see what God would have for us here this morning. As I approach these verses, I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. We're not unique. Don't believe that. Do you know that in my generation, 70 some percent of us in, college, uh, in a college survey believe that we were special and unique? Like that's the generation that I'm in, right? That we're just special because we're born. We're on the face of the planet. And so we all get trophies, all right? We're not unique. There's nothing new under the sun. We're the same as every sinner who's gone before us and every sinner who's gonna come after us. And what's the good news there is we have the same cure. His name is Jesus, right? So that's where we're going this morning, okay? So in the first thing we need to tackle is he says there's neither Jew nor Greek. I think the first thing under point two of horizontal relationships is Paul tackles the issue of race reconciliation and he says it is possible in Christ. Remember, it's all in Christ, the whole point of this is in Christ. And he's gonna go right after the issue of race and say reconciliation of the races is possible in Jesus. Now you and I read, we read words like Jew nor Greek and, um, and it doesn't do much for us. They're both kind of antiquated civilizations. Jews are still around today, but the Greeks is like, ah, whatever. We read about history books and the Jews aren't the society they were then. Things have changed. And so we just, we don't do much with Jew and Greek. But um, let, me, let me wrap your brain a little bit around this. If you're a first century uh, Jew, 
um, there are really two races in the world. In the world, there's Jew and there's everybody else. Seriously, this word Greek is just the word ethnos, nations. It was we're we're the best, and you're not. The Pharisees actually had a threefold statement that they would praise God for. I mean, listen, here, these are this is just terrible. God, I thank you that I'm a Jew and not like the rest of them. I thank you that I'm a man and not a woman. I mean, this is serious. I thank you that I'm free and not a slave. I mean, this was the, this was the pharisaical prayer of their lives. I mean, talk about bigotry. This was serious stuff. I mean, when we read John 4 of Jesus and the woman at the well, if we were first century, we'd be like the disciples when they showed up, where they literally fall over and they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? You're talking to a woman and she is not Jewish. Didn't you know? <laughs> She's one of the outcasts. We don't, we don't interact with them. She's from the other side of the tracks. That's what he's saying. I mean, this was, this was serious hostility. They hated one another. And I think as we approach the scriptures, we need to have this, we need to not see ourselves as different, but see ourselves as really the same. You know why? James 2. James 2 is a little different of a context, but you may know James 2 well enough. Let me just remind you of what he says in James 2. He says that when a person of wealth comes into your congregation, don't show partiality. If he wears gold and fine clothing, or a poor man in shabby clothing, don't pay attention to the one who wears the fine and the one who the poor, you say, you stay over there. You know, now that's a little bit different. That's regarding, that's regarding uh, uh, your social status. But I think it's the same heart issue behind racism. Based on external appearance, I cast my judgment upon you. And you go that way and you go that way. This was true in James. It's true in Galatians. It's true in all the scriptures. Why? Because we are sinners. Well, I think this verse gives us three, or I'm sorry, gives us five implications for today. Just when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek. So bear with me on these five implications. Because I, I think that this theology of Galatians 3, of being in Christ, it actually has really practical outworkings for us like right now. Like just turn on the news. And you're gonna be confronted with something that's gonna be racially charged. And how do we think about it? I think God's word has so much for us. Number one, first implication. I've already kind of stated this, but I want to talk through it again. Racial reconciliation, being one in Christ, is not possible apart from Jesus. It's just not possible. Apart from Jesus, it's not, I don't care what you get your degree in. I don't care where, uh, what job you have or what platform you have, or if you're, if you're the mayor, you're the, you're the president, you're the governor. I don't care who you are. If you're trying to reconcile this age-old battle apart from Jesus, it's not gonna work. Now, I'm not saying, real quick, I just wanna make this clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care. That's not the point. The point is that Jesus is our hope. You know, I grew up in, in Chicago. And if you know anything about Chicago, it's a pretty uh, awesome city, in my opinion, but it's got a lot of problems. It's got a lot of problems in regards to violence. It's got a lot of problems in regards to, to gang violence and killings. And there's people that come in and they want to, they want to do good work. And I, I applaud them for the work they want to do. But as a Christian, sifting through things through the scriptures, it's like, it's not going to work. Because we don't, we're not approaching it from God's perspective. It's from scripture and scripture alone that we get our hope. 
And so if we're striving to see, see this, this issue of race reconciled apart from Jesus, at the end, we're just gonna be twiddling our thumbs and saying, what did we accomplish? Is it really any better off after we've spun our wheels for years and years trying to make headway? Well, that leads us to our second implication that's really obvious. Racial reconciliation is entirely possible because of Jesus. I think actually this is the point of Galatians 3.29. Look at your Bible, one verse down. Verse, look, look what he says. And if you are in Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He just changed your ethnicity. <laughs> he just said, hey, all you non-Jewish people, when you are in Christ, guess what? You're now the offspring of Abraham. All the way back, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Abraham's promised a seed. He's promised an offspring. He's promised a nation. He says, when you're in Christ, you're his. And I love this because Jesus is making one people of God, not based on ethnicity, but based on himself. He's saying this isn't an issue of, of culture, of color, of language. It's an issue of identity in Jesus. And that radically changes everything. And because if you're a child of God here this morning, and because of Jesus being in you, there's a few things that you can do. Because you see, you'll see all people as image bearers and therefore as immensely valuable human beings. Because God has changed you, right? So now it's not just, oh, that person's different than me. It's that person is an image bearer of the God of heaven, one whom Jesus died for, and therefore they have value, regardless of how I agree or disagree. Or maybe secondly, because you see Christ's death as that which is for all peoples, and so you long for the redemption of all peoples, regardless of where they come from. There's been histories in the church, sadly, where mission movements would not go towards certain peoples because well, the gospel is only for these people. God forbid that be us. That we would be the kind of people that, that we say all people, he died for all people. And, we don't, and, th- and then be careful, we don't target a specific people and say they need it worse. <laughs> oh buddy, no, it, nobody needs it worse. I don't care if you go to Folsom prison or you're sitting in this church, you all need the gospel, right? We're all the same. So the point is that, that we see the death of Christ as that which all people need. And even if I'm talking with somebody and I'm saying to them in my mind, I don't agree with your perspective, I don't care because they need Jesus. And it's not about me being right, it's about them needing a Messiah. And so because of what Jesus has done, I love all peoples. And I think the third reason underneath this reconciliation that Jesus alone brings is because you see, if we are in Christ, we'll see sin as the real problem and therefore it only has one cure. Now I'm gonna meddle a little bit, okay? Can I meddle a little bit? (laughs) Do you know that, that every one of us, every one of us at the core of our being has racial pride? Do you know why? because we're all proud, arrogant sinners. Every one of us. I read one man, I mean, this was hundreds of years ago. He just said, if you've never repented of racism, then you're blind to your own sin. (laughs) Oof, 
yikes. Because we like to think, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not like that, not me. That's all their problem. But you see, when we think theologically, we realize the problem is a sin problem. The problem is, is regardless of your skin color and your background, you might come in the door and I'm gonna quickly size you up and I'm gonna determine what I think about you. And that's sin in my heart, isn't it? Regardless of, regardless of your background, regardless of, I may not even know what ethnicity you are, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be able, if I let my pride reign, it's where I'm gonna go. And because the problem is pride, the hope is the gospel, right? That's the issue. The issue is saying, Lord, the problem is my proud heart and I need your grace to actually believe Galatians 2, 328, that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is one people of God. I need it. And then we go to a world and what a great gospel opportunity, isn't this? If you see this as a sin problem, then you're not just trying to solve a socioeconomic issue. You're going after and saying, oh, you need Jesus. The issue is Jesus and you're, you're blind to your need for a savior. And, and I know that this other issue is, is massive and it has weight to it and there's problems in our society with racism, absolutely. But it reveals a greater problem of a need for a savior. And so because of Jesus reconciling all people to himself on the cross, we recognize that the need is, is, a, is a sin problem and a, a problem that only grace can solve. And then brothers and sisters, I just wanna encourage you with this, that because because we know this has always been God's plan. We're, we're children of God. We are brought in the family of God as one people of God. It's always been God's plan. If you just think with me real quick, I'm gonna jump over to Hosea chapter one, a book you've probably not read very often. Um, Hosea chapter one, listen to these words. I mean, this is, this is when Israel is at their lowest of lows. They are running from God as hardcore as you can run from God. Listen to what God says. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall shall be said to them, children of the living God. That is 700 years before Jesus. And he says, you who are not my people, I will call you my children. What do we read in Galatians chapter three? That through faith, you and I are the offspring of Abraham, children of God. It's always been his plan. You know that God has known since the beginning of time that we would fight the battles we face today between races and ethnic, ethnic groups. And his plan from all of time has been, I want one people. I think one of the most beautiful things in Christianity is when you could look at a church and say, this Christianity is not this ethnic group. Because let's be honest, most, most religions of the world are ethnocentric, just because that's how humanity works. Even in our religious systems, we're ethnocentric. And the church, he says, you are the people of God, and God loves it. So the third thing we see under this point of racial reconciliation is possible is that when we talk about racial reconciliation in the church, we're not flattening cultures, we're uniting them in Jesus. His point here isn't the doing away with, his point is the bringing together. You see, in our minds, unity is, you agree with me. (laughs) Do it my way, we're all happy. That's how the world views unity. In God's mind, it's actually entirely different. It's, It's you are able to walk in humility and prefer somebody else over yourself. 
So then it's like, hey, we're not talking about flattening differences. We're talking about rejoicing in differences because this is what the gospel does. If you read, if, just think with me of, Gala- of Revelation 5. Revelation 5, 9. This is the throne room of heaven. And he says, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is an eternity. They're defined by such things. So we as the church, we're not talking about a flattening or a monodimensional faith. We're talking about a racial reconciliation that says because of Christ, we lavishly love one another. Because of Christ, I have a different background and culture, but I value and appreciate yours. And because of Christ and all of that, our longing is to submit to scripture, regardless of culture, regardless of background. And so it is possible to be reconciled and yet celebrate the uniqueness of the body of Christ. Number four from this passage, racial reconciliation is defined by God, not culture. Men and women, this is so significant in our day. Far too often, we as the church take our cue from culture, not scripture. This grieves my soul on whatever side of the coin you fall. Because as believers, we should never be informed by culture more than scripture. What does Romans 12 tell us? I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? By what? The renewal of your mind. Do you not think that in this area, when it comes to the reconciliation of all peoples under the banner of the gospel, we need mind renewal? And I don't care which news channel you watch, if that's where you get your perspective on culture and race, you will not be conformed to scripture, period. Because God's standard is different and it's radically better. And so he is, he is longing that we would go to his word and we would define it as he defines it, not as culture defines it. And I think Paul, you can see that in the implications even in the first century because he is defining something in such a way that the Jewish people reading Galatians would be like, whoa, time out. Uh-uh, you just, what did you say? Did he, maybe there's a misprint here. I don't think he meant to say that. Like they're, they're not reading this glibly, just like we don't read it glibly today. We need to be informed by scripture and far too often we stop short of the biblical solution, which is the gospel. And far too often, even in the context of the church, we pick sides on these issues and we don't come around and say, we have one hope and one savior, his name is Jesus. And I can learn from your perspectives, you can learn from my perspectives and by God's grace, we'll be a community that models what it means to be reconciled across races. That's the fifth point. Racial, reconcil- racial reconciliation should be modeled in the church. The culture should look at the church and say, wow, how do they do it? We don't get it. Sadly, that's not what happens most of the time. But the culture should look in at what we have and say, whatever you have, we can't do because they don't have Jesus. The world should look at what is accomplished in the church through the gospel, the unity of the church, and truly be befuddled. When we come together as the church of many multi-ethnic groups and we have true joy together and true unity, it is a glimpse of heaven on earth, truly. It's a glimpse of Revelation 5, 9, when we will all worship around the throne 
And I, I love when people say, you know, if they're of, a, of an Asian background or a Hispanic background or whatever, they'll say, oh, the language of heaven is this. Amen. It's gonna be a, a, a somehow where all that God has created is appreciated and yet we can all communicate. How awesome will that be? But his point is that it's, it's what should be taking place now. It's gonna happen then, but we shouldn't just wait for then. We should fight for it now because it's possible now through Jesus. And so when we read this verse, there is neither Jew nor Greek. I think we should come away with, with this longing that here at Elk Grove Bible, we would say the gospel has done that here. The gospel alone because we come to the table with a whole bunch of cultures and a whole bunch of background. And if we make that the goal, to fight over that, well, then there'll just be division running rampant. But if we come together as a people bought by the blood of Jesus, oh, what sweet joy we can know. What sweet joy. Well, he goes on. So he tackles the racial issue, Juno Greek. And then he gets into something that might even be more controversial. Neither slave nor free. Man, this is tough. We don't like slavery talk in America. It's a really nasty period of American history. And if you actually travel the world much today, you'll see that slavery is still rampant in the world today. It's all over the globe. And frankly, it's not gonna end until Jesus comes back because of sin. But when we read this, please don't think that we have a better understanding of it than they did then. Do you realize in the first century, a third of the Roman population was slaves? At least a third. Here's how Rome did it. We come into your people group, we conquer you, and then we kill you, and then we make you our slaves if you're lucky enough to live. Like this isn't like a, a happy-go-lucky relationship. This is like rip you out of your culture because we're better and we're gonna conquer you and then you're gonna serve us. Um, and he's writing to a culture that's very familiar with slavery without question people receiving this letter either were slaves or owned slaves. I mean, that's, what, that's what's going on when you read Galatians. And now we have a hard time with that because we're like, Paul, you just need to come out and say slavery, sin, bro. Like you just gotta fight against slavery. He's actually not doing that. He's gonna say that if you're free or if you're a slave, when it comes to Jesus, it doesn't matter because that's what he's going after. It's all about being in Christ. So just real quick, he's not condemning or condoning but he is gonna make a stronger theological point. That these two classes of society that cannot be reconciled are one in Jesus, which is the point of Philemon, if you read the book of Philemon. He was a Christian who was a slave. And there's a letter written by Paul to take to Philemon's master that he would treat his slave well because they're one in Christ. This is hard, whether it's, true master-slave or just cultural perspectives, isn't it? So back in 2012, my wife and I had the privilege of serving alongside a church in uh, Venice, Italy. And the church was a Filipino church in the city of Venice uh, because the Filipinos are the um, kind of the day laborers of Italy. Um, they're, they're the servants, they're the, they're the cab drivers, they're the cleaners. And there's tens of thousands of, tens of, thousands of them all over um, uh, Italy. And so this church was a Filipino church. And we had a really unique opportunity to do an outreach to Italian men uh, through a basketball kind of three-on-three tournament. And the Filipinos were our translators. 
okay? Because we didn't speak Italian. They spoke English and Italian. The Italians only spoke Italian. So we thought, great, we've got translators. We'll put on this tournament, okay? So we're at this park. What we didn't realize was that in Italy, because the Filipinos work for the Italians, they wouldn't interact with them. I mean, like, like they wouldn't interact at all. And I'm like, trans, I'm like telling them, like, you say this, and they're like, I, I can't. Because in their minds, they were underneath the Italians. And, and it was just, it was like, so I'm trying, you know, when you don't speak a language, you speak louder and slower and they'll understand you. So I'm trying to share the gospel and organize teams because the, it got so bad, the Filipinos wouldn't play them in basketball. Because if they were to beat them, they would feel like they overstepped their cultural bounds. And it was such an interesting learning experience for me that even in a society that would say slavery's wrong, man, we can sure divide people based on ethnicities, based on socioeconomic status, don't we? And here he says, you're one. And this is the heart of James too, actually. You're one. And so I love the, the church when we come together. And it's like, why would, why would somebody of this status, socioeconomically, hang out with somebody of that status? Not just hang out, but why would they be dearest of friends? Why would they rejoice together? Why would they weep together? Because of Jesus. So they're in Christ. So Paul actually isn't fighting to bring them closer together. He's simply saying in every culture this exists, but because of Jesus, it doesn't have to. And so now we might say, oh, you know what? Yeah, you live on that side of town and I could never afford it. <laughs> and I live over here. And you might think that where I live is crazy and I think where you live is crazy. But man, we love each other because we have Jesus and he is our unity. He's what we come together for. So Paul attacks the issue of socioeconomic disparity, and he says it becomes irrelevant in the church. So we care for each other. If there's somebody less fortunate, man, we can go to passage after passage, give to them, love them. We should share all things in common together. But when it comes to where we are, maybe in a society with, we don't have classes like maybe you might see in India, but we have maybe under, understood levels. He says, they're one in Christ. He has reconciled us to himself and therefore we are one people of God. And then he finishes the verse with, there is neither male and female. So he's gone after race. He's gone after socioeconomic levels. Now he goes off to, after gender. And I think here what he does is I, I call it gender value is demonstrated. Gender value is demonstrated. Again, just reminds you of the culture. Women weren't treated as fair. They weren't equal status as men, all right? Now we'd say, oh, that's true today too. Okay, I give it to you. It was worse then, all right? It was way worse to the point where if you didn't get a husband, you were homeless. Like you're, you're on the streets because you, you, your entire livelihood was connected to you, be you having a man. Now I know it's it's culturally a lot farther. It's a lot previous um, in biblical history. But like the book of Ruth, which is about seven hundred years before or so, right? That was where Ruth. It was like she needs a husband because even as a widow, she's destitute. Like this is the culture of the era, and so women, you don't. It's not. We're not just arguing about pay equality. Okay, we're arguing about are you like subhuman? 
because you're a woman. Remember the Pharisees? I thank God I'm not a woman. That was their daily prayer. And it reflected the society. And so for Paul to come along and say, in Jesus, there is neither male or female was like, what? You've got to be kidding. Now, know this. Paul is in no way erasing, erasing gender distinctions. Liberals have gone to this verse and say, see, be whoever you want to be. You define your gender. In Christ, there is no difference. That's not the point. That's not the point at all. Just like the point of race. He didn't say you lose your race. He just said you're one in Jesus, okay? So don't go where scripture doesn't go. He's not erasing the goodness of gender roles defined by God in culture and the home. Those are, are good and they're from creation. What he is saying through divine inspiration is that male and female, men and women are both created equal in the image of God and they're both valuable before God, equally so. And in Christ, there is no difference. So because of pride, men, let's just be honest, we're chauvinistic. And our world is really good at being chauvinistic. That we're just a little bit smarter. No offense, ladies. And I don't, I don't doubt that many of you are much smarter than me. We're, we're just, we, there's a chauvinism, there's an arrogance that can, that can be portrayed by men. That's not American 21st century, that's global history. And it's sin, and it's wrong. And here he says, in Christ, you are one. He is magnifying and uplifting the place and the role of women because they are so often subjected. And he's saying, they shouldn't be in the church. Now again, we can say, yeah, we do believe in the pastoral epistles and other places teach about men preaching. And so there are roles in the church. We're not talking about that. We're talking about your position before God. And then your position as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, you're one and delight in it. So here in, in the issue of, I call it Pauline soteriology, how Paul talks about salvation when it comes to status and privilege as in Christ, children of God, men and women are on equal ground. That's his point. We are blessed the same as men and women, as brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't want to belabor this too much, but going back to the Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus was really good at making sure everyone understood that all people, regardless of gender, were valuable. He didn't just go to a woman. He went to the worst of women. He went to the women who, who other people would say, hey, do you know that talking to her, you'd probably get thought of badly? Like, you shouldn't even be talking to her. Like, you're gonna be thought of as an immoral man. And he went after her. So Jesus highlighted the value of women in a culture that subjugated women. And then he goes, and then Paul comes up after, the, after Christ and says, in Christ, there is not male and female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Talk about how we, do, how we interact horizontally in the church, right? He just gave value to all people in the church, race, socioeconomic and gender. I don't think you could come up with another category. And he says, in Christ, we are one people of God and we should 
delight in this and magnify this. And then as it was happening in Galatia, everything that comes in to deny one of these truths, you fight against it. So when somebody comes in and tries to undermine the oneness of the people of God, you stand up and say, no, time out. No, we have unity in Christ and in him alone. It's not in our preferences. It's not in our school choices. It's not in our socioeconomic backgrounds. It's not in our race. It's not in our gender. It's in Jesus and in him alone. So brothers and sisters, do you see from Galatians chapter three, how your vital union with Christ matters this morning? Do you see how it, it, it matters in your relationship to God? You're his, you're adopted, you're a child of the God of heaven. Apart from anything you've done, you've been declared righteous by God. And then because of your union with Christ, you're a child of God with all those rights and privileges. There's the identity language. You're identified as a child of God. And so you don't have to search for identity in anything else. You have to go after, excuse me, whatever this world puts forward to find identity in because your identity is secure in Jesus. And because of that identity being so secure in Christ, you're able to genuinely love and prefer all peoples because of the gospel. That's the point. So he's saying because of who you are in Christ, now you can gather with the church and have oneness in Christ with all people, regardless of distinction, regardless of anything, because of Christ. And so my hope and my prayer is that we'd be the kind of church that lives out the reality of our union with Christ. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be glorious for the world to look in and say, what's happening at EGBC is only explained by, by grace and by the gospel and by a God who radically changes sinful, selfish human beings for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it grounds us in truth and thank you for, for how it pushes us to action. We need both. We need to come back to rich truths from your word and then we need to be shoved in the right direction. And so might we go this week more aware of our union with Christ and then more committed to living out the realities of that union. And in Christ's name, amen.